Welcome everyone to episode two of the Products from Scratch podcast. I'm Ashwin and Mike is on the other line. And in this podcast, we talk about two engineers who are making technical products from scratch. And so my product is one that helps people learn to read and understand fluent Mandarin. And I work on this product in my free time because I have a full-time job as a software engineer. And Mike has quit his job entirely and so works full-time on his product, which is one that helps frustrated engineers resolve their career problems. So every week we promise to do something for next week. So let's keep doing that now. Ashwin, what did you promise last week and did you end up doing it? Yeah, so last week I promised to take these characters that I had come up with after interviewing a bunch of people who might be interested in buying software and to write marketing copy for those personas. So I sat down and read a few copywriting books and yeah, I wrote a couple of those. One quote I wanted to bring up in the course of reading that I thought was really elucidating was by Chester Karras in a negotiation book that he wrote. And he said, you've never seen an order for a pound of make my life easier or three dozen, no future troubles, but that's what the other party wants from you. And I think that's true in copywriting. So you really need to speak to the emotions that your potential customer has and try to resolve those issues for them. Did you end up writing your own? Yeah, I did. I went through a lot of the copywriting books had templates and stuff, but I tried to just get the major points from copywriting books and try to apply them in some original writing. Do you want to share one out loud? Sure. So I have a few marketing spiels here. They're written kind of like sales letters. So there are a few paragraphs long. The first one I wrote was for the persona that I had interviewed where my target customer is somebody who finds himself doing business in China. So as I read the sales letter, you can kind of see like what emotion I'm trying to get at from him. Okay. So here goes. You may know how it feels to be at a business dinner in China nodding your head, but unable to participate. Even though you've lived in China for years, you feel alienated because you just can't handle fast back and forth Chinese. You want to jump in, but you're scared to sound like an idiot. I know how that feels. I lived in Taiwan as an American. I tried everything, flashcards, conversation partners, and even slogging my way through novels. Studying was taking forever, but my Mandarin just wasn't improving. So I hired native Mandarin speakers to record stories using only the vocabulary that matters the most. The words are from the official Mandarin language exam, the HSK. I put it together in software called Kanread. Because it teaches you vocabulary through stories, you only hear natural ways of using words, so you won't put together strange sentences that you came up with after memorizing a bunch of flashcards. You hear stories at a slow and standard spoken pace, so you won't have to foolishly nod along anymore when people talk to you quickly. And it includes memorization and typing practice, so you can remember which words to use in a conversation on top of being able to read them. Now I'm confident in handling myself at a Chinese dinner celebration after using Conread. You can earn that confidence too. Click the buy button today. Cool. So that passage was actually very interesting. I saw in the very beginning you were trying to paint various scenarios that you yourself or your characters went through the people that you talked to. And this would enable a future, a prospective customer to place themselves back in that situation and feel the emotion of embarrassment or inadequacy that came up. 
I did like how you ended with, you know, a simple description of what you actually are trying to do and with a buy now kind of thing. One question I have for you, and this is something that I personally am very interested in, how long did it take you to craft that almost like a pitch? So, yeah, that's a good question. I think the actual writing took probably about 30 minutes for that spiel, but I don't think the writing was most of the time. I think most of the time was, number one, reading how to write copywriting. I write fairly frequently, so writing as a skill itself is not terribly difficult for me. But another hard part was just getting the emotions that I wanted to talk about in my target customer. So for example, in the beginning of the spiel, I said, you may know how it feels to be at a business center in China, unable to participate, and you feel alienated because you're supposed to be able to understand Mandarin, even though you've lived in China for so many years, and you just can't. So that emotion is something that I would never have thought of if I just sat down to write something. I had to learn that, you know, secondhand from somebody I actually talked to who told me how bad he felt when this actually happened to him. So it was more like, it was more the customer research that went into the writing that was the most time-consuming thing. Gotcha. Is there any other of these emotional hooks that you wanted to point out in this passage that I missed? I think, so from what I read from a lot of copywriting books is it's good to start with the emotional hook first. So you get the person already visualizing the problem that they're having and so they kind of like start nodding their head like, yeah, I feel that way. So that's why I started with the pitch like, you may know how it feels to X. And then they say, yeah, that's true. That's how I feel. And then you sympathize with them in the next paragraph by saying, I also know how that feels because of my experience. And so they're like, huh, this person is credible. You know, they've done something similar like me. Then once they've sort of like bought into what problem you're trying to solve and that they really have that problem... Then you start talking about what you've done, how it can help them. So then I talk about my features and I talk about the features only in the context of like how it can directly help them. So I don't just say, oh, I have all these like awesome features in my app. I say, I have this X feature and it's awesome because it will help you solve this problem of yours. And then I go through all of them. And at the end, I just close with like a really brief call to action you know, this saved me from doing this. They can help you also buy it today. And uh, yeah. Huh. I actually kind of want to hear another one. Do you happen to have another one like offhand that we can hear? Because the first one was pretty good. Yeah, sure. So let's see. I have a couple more. One of them was, again, about a Chinese businessman. This time, the angle of the emotion is more about him getting respect. And then I have another one, which I don't think is as good. It's from the perspective of somebody who has suddenly found themselves married to a Chinese spouse. (laughs) But let me read the second one about the business because I think it's a little bit better. Okay. You may have found yourself doing more business in China. Perhaps your company hired an interpreter for you. Maybe your Chinese business partner can even speak some English. But you feel uneasy because you can't cut through the bullshit and just speak honest Mandarin during a business deal. I know how that feels. I live in Taiwan as an American. The truth is, the Chinese give you the greatest respect when you can actually speak their language. They are beyond impressed when a foreigner takes the time to excel in Mandarin. They will open doors for you they otherwise wouldn't have. They will make doing business easier and prefer to work with you since you're unique in your ability to actually speak their language. I wanted that trust and respect, so I created Conread which teaches you important Mandarin vocabulary and expressions through stories. 
You hear the words in the context of natural Chinese, so you won't put together strange sentences that you came up with after memorizing flashcards. You hear the stories at a slow and standard spoken pace, so you can understand when your business partner speaks to you quickly. And you get memorization and typing practice, so you're not searching for words or ashamed when somebody shows you a simple business document. You can go behind Ni Hao with Kanreed. You can earn the full trust of your Chinese business partners. Click the buy button today. Huh. I actually think I like that one. That one, that notion about respect, and that was actually pretty powerful. So, why don't you tell us you know, how you constructed that one? Yeah, so that one was so this is again the case as a businessman in China, but it's getting at a different emotion that he feels, and that is that he's not so much ashamed that he can't speak Chinese. In fact, he's a very proud American, and he kind of feels like, you know, why should I have to learn Mandarin? But he has this like niggling thing in the back of his mind that says, if I actually took the time to learn Mandarin, I wonder like if, you know, suddenly like all my Chinese business partners would trust me a lot more, if I'd get a lot more deals done, if they just see me as a more worthy either adversary or a more worthy collaborator. And I found this emotion in like a couple of business people I talked to. They were like, yeah, I mean, you don't have to learn Mandarin when you go to China. Like you can get an interpreter or like sometimes they speak English, but like it's so much better when you can look somebody in the eye and speak Mandarin. They just trust you a million times more. So that was the emotion that I was getting at in this one. And I mean, I could have written something like, you need to learn Mandarin when you go to China because otherwise you can't do business. But that's just not true. It's like a different, like slightly less important thing that you have to do, but it's still, it's still really good for business. That's what I wrote. Huh. So for the rest of us, do you have any tips or books that you'd recommend for this thing? I actually think we're going to start incorporating some of the things you brought up. Yeah, I would say a couple of the good books that I read. Number one was Copywriting for the Rest of Us. And I think it's volume two by Mike Shreve. That was pretty good. It was a very short book, but you really don't need that much stuff in a copywriting book. You just need to know some techniques about how to write. Another one was How to Write Seductive Web Copy by Henneke Duistamat. And that one was also pretty short. All the copywriting books I've seen actually are fairly short. And uh, I mean, that was specifically geared for the web, but I think you could probably use the same principles in, in print advertisements. And yeah, they're very good. Highly recommended. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. So let's talk about what you promised last week. What is it that you said you were going to do, Mike? So one of the first things that we needed to get done was a Techstars application. Techstars is an incubator slash accelerator in New York City and similar to the Y Combinator based out in California. And we found out about the deadline, you know, a couple weeks ago that it's going to be Monday. And so we have a bunch of stuff that we need to do for that application. It's a bunch of questions. And the best thing about having kind of to force yourself into this structure is getting your thoughts down on paper. When someone asks you, what is it exactly that you do? You have to have a nice crisp response. They ask for two types of videos. One is a founder video and one is a product video. And we have yet to complete our product video, but the way I was approaching it was very similar to what you were kind of talking about with setting up that emotional experience, talking about how it affected you, and then closing with exactly how you want to either sell the product or in our case, pitch an idea. 
And so we've already shot one part of this, which is a simulation of a tech lead that is constantly being bombarded with questions, managers, emails, and tasks to do, and just doesn't have enough time in the day to tackle all of it. And uh, the last cut of that is me just, you know, completely frustrated with my head down and uh, it's late at night and I'm alone at the office. So we're trying to spin that angle. <laughs> That's cool. So did you have to do a little bit of acting for that? <laughs> yeah, so we did. It was kind of like a minute long skit and uh, I have to video edit that this weekend, but I'll definitely uh, send it to you when we're done. And one other thing that, you know, was something that we had to do was create a logo. And for that, we ended up using 99designs. What is 99designs? Yeah, so this is something I've heard about for quite a few number of years now, where it's basically an auction house for designers to showcase their talent. You pose a question of what you want designed, and a bunch of designers will try to design it for you. And you just basically look at all these different designs, and through a process of a week or a couple weeks, you pick the best one that you want, and you can also give feedback to the other ones so that they have time to revise it. Now, the main pitch for them is they don't actually make any money on any of the designs that they make until you select one as the winner. This is a model that I'm not sure I'm a big fan of because it's really good for the customer, someone like me, because I get all these people to basically work for free before I give them any money. And there is a, a refund guarantee if you don't find anything satisfactory. But on the flip side, if you're a designer and you're trying to make a living through 99designs, it seems like it's a pretty hard gig if you're not even guaranteed, you know, a few hundred dollars for the work that you do with logos in design. Yeah, I would agree with that. It seems like it creates an incentive for the people who know they can charge a large amount of money for their time to just not participate. And so you get like the pool of designers is more about quantity over quality. You might get a lot of people from like foreign countries who are typically paid less for creative work who will submit their apps instead. But I mean, you can't really complain when you have, you know, just a huge amount of potential designs given to you, right? Right. What's your experience with freelancers? I know we used some for Lexeme, you know, five years ago. Have you used any with your language software since then? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. With Conry, I've used tons of freelancers actually. So the freelancers, I need them because I need people to write Mandarin content for me. So they need to write stories in Mandarin. They need to record the voiceovers in Mandarin. Everything that has to do with the language that isn't technical, they have to do. And that's been pretty interesting. I mean, I've learned some things like, for example, number one rule is not to hire Malaysians while writing standard Mandarin stories. <laughs> I found that out by, uh, you know, I posted a job like write a Mandarin story using this dictionary. And then I got some applications. I hired a Malaysian dude had him write the stories. They sounded fine to me because I'm not a native Mandarin speaker. Then I sent them for review to like somebody from Shanghai. And she was like, who wrote this? Was this like a non-native speaker? Because nobody would ever say these sentences ever. And she just like tore apart the entire thing. And I was like, oh man, yeah, he's from Malaysia. He speaks Malaysian Chinese. And she was like, no, this is terrible. So <laughs> I had to get them redone. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just typical things like that. Make sure you have other freelancers in the pipeline who are checking the work if you can't evaluate it as well as you think you could have. And, uh, you know, cheaper is not always better is another example. Often I found that I post a job, somebody underbids my original price and they do the work. But then the people who kind of overbid a little bit often are just really conscientious. They're very diligent about their work. They like handle you know, modifications that you want to do like much 
better. It's like a you get what you pay for sort of deal. I mean, they're still based in China, so you're you're not paying out the ass. But those rules still apply. And then probably the last thing I learned from hiring freelancers was make sure that you structure the work in extremely well-defined tasks. Usually, you can't give a freelancer something like, "Hey, just write a story that you know makes use of these words, and that's it." And then like you're done. You need to tell them. You know, I want this kind of vocabulary. It should be written for this kind of audience. It should be no longer than this amount of words. It should have this kind of tone. Everything needs to be like pretty well structured. Otherwise, the work you get back might be terrible, and then you've wasted everyone's time. So it should be very, very well structured. It takes a lot of time to create a good freelancer job application. I have two follow up questions there. One we'll talk about a little bit later. The first one is. There must be some system for like a, a Yelp for these type of freelancers. When you started to kind of compare their reviews or ratings with the work you kind of got back, was there any correlation with what other people had mentioned prior to you hiring this freelancer? Yeah. So typically, I use Odesk, or it's now called Upwork. So typically, I use Upwork, and、um, they always come with reviews. Although a lot of times people come in without reviews and. You know, you can still take the chance to hire them. The question is, how do you know if they're going to be good? And what I usually do is, I put some screening questions that are specific to my job application up there. So I'll say, if, for example, my job was, I want you to write a story in Chinese using this dictionary, then I'll put a smaller dictionary up there and say, write me two sentences of a story using this smaller constrained version of the dictionary. That filters out. Almost every applicant who, first of all, like isn't going to do the work, then the people who apply, I can see like how good they are because what they've written will be directly applicable to the job at hand. So I found that actually, sort of, it's not really about the stars that they have in their application; it, it's about their work sample that is like meaningful to you. So that's the best filter I found. And the second question that I had was around structure and providing that framework for your freelancers to kind of follow along. Let me actually come back to this point. Let me tell you a little bit about the structure that I'm trying to build into this application, and then I have a couple of questions that I like to ask you about, you know, structure in general. So, you know, last week I talked about putting different frustrations for engineers in different categories, and I've slowly started. Like Brian and I are trying to build this into, you know, a mobile application. And one of the things that we realized while we were going through our TechStars application is that there's so many more hypotheses, so many questions that are still untested about the problem space that we're working in, that we should still be able to do even while building this application. So one of the things that we looked at was we looked at apps like Asana. So Asana is a to-do app that we kind of covered a couple weeks ago. This is something where we think they do a really good job with dealing with structured data. And so we try to put ourselves in their shoes. How would you even test a product like Asana, even without having a mobile app? You might create a Google Doc for you and your friends to collaborate on tasks and mark off when you're done or in progress. And that's the kind of model that we've tried this week, which was we created a three-step Google form, and we tried to get every contextual piece that might be needed for a person to describe their frustration. And we started to use that as a springboard for additional dialogue with feedback and advice for our customers. So my question to you is: How do you know when to add more and more guidelines, 
And how do you know when is that too much that you should back off and give some either creativity for that freelancer or customer, or it'll get too complicated where they kind of drop out of their flow? I think for me, the jobs that I was posting are sort of, they're inherently creative in nature. So for example, you know, writing a story is a free form exercise. You can write literally anything that you want. And so for me, it was just to give them general guidelines, like make sure it's appropriate for adults. It's not cutesy, make sure it uses all the vocabulary. And then I let them say, you know, you can write a horror story, you can write something that's interesting, whatever you want. So that much was up to them. I don't want to be too draconian on like the actual creative process. It's just about making sure that all these logistical things are handled, like don't leave out words that you need to use, etc. So yeah. Okay. And then once you have these stories created, how do you figure out whether or not the story was good? How are you, what metrics are you using for that? So those right now, I'm just reading through them myself. I read through them if I think they're pretty good or they're interesting to me because I'm also a Mandarin learner, then I say pass. If not, then I say, can you rewrite this bit of the story? I found it too boring. And then on the second hand, you know, I send the story over to somebody who does the voiceovers. And if they find something that's a little bit unnatural in speech, then that comes back to me and I tell the writer to make this modification. But yeah, I mean, I would be a pretty good judge of like what's interesting and what's not to a foreign language learner because I am one myself. Got it. So regarding the low-tech prototype that you were building to get engineer frustrations with your Google Doc, how have you determined if that's effective or not? So at the end of each of the flows, which is a back and forth between the actual frustration and a user taking some advice that the coach gives, we basically pose two questions and we'll look at how they kind of respond. One is, will they recommend this to another colleague they say going through the similar situation? And if so, who is that user? And we'd potentially reach out to that colleague as well. And the second would be, we would keep sending them these pings every week. And if they came back, if they kept illustrating their frustration, we'd know that we provided enough value that they're willing to keep going through this again and again. And so those two combined would be our current True North metrics of how we actually did. Okay. And I think we talked about the difference between True North metrics and I guess regular metrics in a previous episode, but can you recap what the difference is? Yeah. So instead of saying regular metrics, we'll use the slightly more negative term vanity metrics versus true uh -huh. north metrics. <laughs> Vanity metrics are the ones that make you look really good. You can generally construct, you know, up into the right hockey stick looking graphs of like member signups. And true north metrics are more of how are those users actually doing? Are you retaining them? So given a set of users that joined this week, are they still actively engaged in the site a month later? Or what percentage of those are engaged, you know, a month later or six months later? And that's a more constructive measure of how healthy your site is. Okay. Is a true north metric, like the difference between a vanity metric and a true north metric, is that totally a judgment call or what? Uh, yes. And it's definitely going to be more catered to how your product actually is. For example, with us, if we don't end up solving any frustrations at all, we're not going to be very useful, even if we get a million users to sign up. Right. That would be a nice problem to have, but yeah, I can see what <laughs> right. that would be a problem. So let's wrap up the experience that you had creating this low-tech prototype with a Google Docs. Is there anything else important that you learned about it? 
So one of the major things I learned this week is that working with your customers, especially on a personal type of product, is very, very stressful. Every time I send out these forms for frustrations to get filled out, I'm waiting every single day to see if they've acted on it. And then when I give them feedback about you know what they can try, it's another waiting process of, am I giving them value? Am I too general? Am I contextual enough? And there's a lot of second guessing that goes on. But the thing that is cool is when you get those customers that really do get benefit from your product. For example, I had a call with a, an old colleague last night and he told me straight up, like he really appreciated the structure of the frustration to fill out as well as the action items that I gave back to him. And this is something that I can definitely talk more about next week, but he, is even having more proactive one-on-ones with his manager, which is helping him out a lot. Yeah, that sounds good. It kind of seems like because, I mean, this is your product that so much of your ego is wrapped up in whether or not somebody likes it or doesn't like it, that it will cause a lot of you know emotional stress regardless. Do you go through the same stuff with Conreed? I do, although I will, I think, but not yet. So I don't have a product in front of people yet, so I'm not... I don't really have to worry about it. Right now, it's just been me interviewing other people, which doesn't give me any stress at all. But yeah, I can totally see that happening. I mean, once you, that's yours, you know, and I've done this before with other products. It's like, it's so, it's like your teeth are <laughs> chatter, <laughs> like when somebody else uses it. Yeah, it's nerve wracking. So Ashwin, how is everything else going for you? It's going pretty well. Honestly, I think this past week, I mismanaged my time a bit, so Last week I said, you know, you only really get 10 good hours, at least in my case, to work on this side project. And uh, I think I didn't really approach that limit this week because I was playing way more sports than I needed to play. (laughs) And it was really easy for me to come home and, you know, just sort of push off the work that I had to do until the next day. And then the next day becomes the next day, etc. And it wasn't really until the weekend where I had a lot of hours set aside to do something. I think for next week, I'll definitely be more wary of that. I mean, now that I've recognized it can be a problem, I'll just be a little bit more stricter. You know, instead of going and playing Ultimate Frisbee for three hours, I'll just play for one and then come home and do some work. So yeah, the important thing I think is to catch these sort of failing habits early. (laughs) So speaking of time management, Mike, how have you in the past weeks, how long you've been working like on weekdays and weekends? Has anything changed your rhythm? So our schedule is pretty routine, especially for the first couple weeks. We work maybe 11 to 5, and then we'll work in the evenings offline. It only accelerated this weekend because of the app deadline and the customer advice that we're still giving. And that's probably been you know a good 12 to 14 hours for the past two days. But I'm trying to be super cognizant of not stressing ourselves out too early, because I know there will be times when in a startup, you're going to have to be going pretty hard. So Mike, you have quit your job and work on this product full time. So what is your take on, you know, doing the kind of extra work that you did this weekend and, you know, applying that to working on all weekends? What's your take on that? So honestly, Ashwin, I'm pretty conflicted. You have the typical startup mindset, which is you have to go as hard as you can seven days a week, but then you have the growing trend of the work-life balance, whether this be a big company or a startup. And so I think we're just going to take it, you know, week by week this week, because we had the app deadline. We know we needed to go a little bit harder. Maybe next week, it's July 4th. We do a barbecue or we take it easy. Don't know yet. Yeah, that's good. 
I would just caution, you know, make sure it's not too many weeks in a row that you're like, oh, we had to do this extra work. So I guess we have to do it again. Just right. make sure you give yourself some time. Yeah. So that about sums up this week's podcast. Mike, what is it that you're planning to do for us next week? So two things. One, we're going to continue getting user feedback via this Google form flow. I'll share one flow next week. And two, we're going to try to mimic this Google flow on the app. Okay. What exactly is a flow? So the flow is a frustration creation flow where a user enters their frustration, followed by feedback from a coach, and then followed by an interaction with the user to describe whether or not he or she followed up on those actions. That's the flow. That's cool. So you're going to take us through an engineer actually like typing his responses in the initial form and then you guys giving him advice and then seeing what he does about it. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I look forward to that. Cool. How about you? Yeah, so this week I'm probably going to be doing all engineering work. So I have these stories and I have the voiceovers, the Mandarin voiceovers for these stories. But right now they're just in audio files and text files and I need to start structuring them into data structures. So something that I can actually use in my software. So I'm going to go through all the stories, split them up, split up the audio, align them properly, get translations, get, you know, transliterations, which is, you know, the English transcriptions under Chinese characters and definitions and try to put them all into something that I can actually use in a code base. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, cool. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week. See ya. Take care.